Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're going to be chatting all things golf business and marketing, including, funnily enough, the game's obsession with distance with award-winning journalist and author of the excellent unofficial partner blog, Richard Gillis. Richard will join us in just a few moments after we say hello and welcome to my co-host for the day. We haven't quite managed to stir Mike Clayton yet, so we'll just be the two of us. Uh, from the US, a man who no longer le- no longer needs me to tell you that he is, among other things, a blogger, critic, author, course architect, and regular Golf Channel guest, Jeff Shackelford. Did you see what I did there, Shack? Got all of that in yeah. while saying I didn't need to say it. That was very, very touching. Thank you so much it's for early, the kind it's introduction. It's early in the morning. You took me a couple of minutes to... Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed that you're even speaking at this yeah, hour. In, uh, indeed. As I said, hopefully Clades will join us shortly. Just to prove what a global world we live in these days, though, also joining us from the UK is the aforementioned Richard Gillis. Richard's blog at unofficialpartner.co.uk covers marketing, all, all sports. Golf gets its fair share of attention as well. It's not the dry, boring stuff you might expect when you hear the word marketing, though. No, Richard has a keen eye, a sharp tongue, and an always refreshing take on happenings in and around the game, and he joins us to chat about some of that today. Richard, welcome to you, and thanks for taking some time. Thanks very much. Yeah, delighted to be here. I'm a big fan of the big fan of the podcast. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Funnily enough, and this is one of the things I actually wanted to ask you about, Richard. For a lot of us, we hear the words, you know, marketing, advertising. Either the eyes go back in the head as we sort of say, oh, you know, not all this, not this old chestnut again, or we think we're immune to it. Um, are we? Yeah. Well, I. You like to think you are, don't you? I mean, I and I do, but I, there's a sort of. If you look, you ask anyone in the, in the marketing industry that you go to extremes on that question. So either they are everywhere and they're all pervasive and they're controlling our minds, or they are being blocked out and they're in a they're in a panic and they don't they're not reaching us in the same way as they used to. I mean, you used to watch, you know when you watch um, Mad Men, it's just such a you know on on uh, on telly, it's just like a it's another world because the ads. And the uh, the people of Madison Avenue and and Soho in London, they could reach virtually the whole population with an ad, with a TV ad or a print ad. And now, obviously, those days are gone. And sponsorship and golf sponsorship has benefited from that. So we've seen a big boom in in sponsorship rights, and that's kept the economy of, the, of golf going for for you know we're we're looking at twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the question about whether it works or not, it work it certainly works. At some level, it works for certain things. It depends on what the companies are trying to do. Um, now, whether it gets us to buy stuff is always the question. You know, that is a very flaky area of uh, research. And, you know, but it's, they have to keep spending. A lot of these brands, it's fear that drives um, engagement rather than any great, uh, you know, overriding strategy because they're just worried if they stop talking mm. and saying something and making some noise that actually they'll just be, you know, we've got too much choice and they'll be swamped. Huh. The old adage about the bike, isn't it? As long as you're moving, you won't fall off. As soon as the bike stops, then you fall <laughs> off. You can't have, can't have that. It strikes me, Richard, you said, you know, big fan of the podcast. I appreciate that. But the truth is, in a lot of ways, state of the game is, in fact, an anti-establishment thing, you know? Yeah. No, nobody in the golf media gets on and says, like, Clates often does, the Pro V1 has ruined the game. The game would be better without <laughs> club car and golf carts, you know? You don't yeah. find that anywhere in the golf media because it's a niche and everyone needs to get on. You don't find that so- sort of honesty. Is there, not just in golf but more broadly, a little bit of a kickback against this sort of stuff? I suspect the popularity of this 
is exactly that. All of those frustrated golfers who agree that the ball goes too far and all of these other issues that we talk about here that don't really get talked about, certainly not in in such a direct way. I won't say dishonest. I mean, I don't diss the other golf media. There are reasons why they're sort of don't do it quite as blatantly as we do. But is there a bit of a kickback generally, do you think, against this stuff where a show like State of the Game is popular simply because it says stuff that nobody else says? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, this is the Twitter argument, isn't it? The, you know, it's a sort of refreshing, the, the voice is authentic and therefore, um, you know, we warm to it in a way that we've been messaged to death by, but, you know, both corporates but also the, the most sports people, um, you know, the, the death, the slow death over a period of time of the sort of feature interview. You know, when was the last time you read a read a feature interview with anyone in sport that, that was on either not trying to flog you something, but also was just really tedious because all the interesting stuff gets filtered out. And, and that is a problem for the mainstream golf media because it's, and I'm talking more print probably than, than on broadcast, but it applies to broadcast as well. It just feels like everyone's in the bubble, as you say. Um, now I've often asked whenever I go on the rare occasion I go on a sort of golf press trip when you're going to get asked by magazines and things I quite often ask you know what could you have an honest golf magazine Um, and most people are are quite upfront and say you know of course not you know you just get blocked out you won't get the club clubs uh, trying to advertise as soon as you know if you if you diss the new uh launch of of the big brand then they ain't going to come advertising with you anytime soon so you know it's a and the, and the, the ultimate loser in that is the reader because the, the reader goes you know unserved does the reader know that do you think richard does the reader know that when they read the glowing course review about the new golf course that's just opened and then four page later there's an ad for that same golf course. Do they see the connection? I mean, it's not quite that simple. I mean, I don't think in reality, I know a lot of golf journalists, as do you, Jeff, and I don't think they're dishonest people. But there are certainly agendas, aren't they? If you get sent to review a new golf course that is also advertising in the magazine, it's a bit like going to somebody's house. It's a bit rude to walk in for the first time and say, oh, gee, the floor doesn't look very good or I don't like the carpet. You kind of need to be nice. But do the readers know that, do you think, Richard? Yeah, of course they do. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it's... that's why whenever, you know, the, the, the problem and the media has got itself into a, you know, this is not just a golf related issue, but it's across the board. But you've got um, whenever a politician makes a statement that is vaguely honest, it is now a gaffe, you know. So in the same way as, as golf, someone says something interesting and suddenly it's news and, and, and actually there is a level of distrust on both sides. Now, that affects the level, you know, the sort of discourse, public discourse in, in not just in golf, but in, in life generally. But to answer your question, of course, the readers know that, you know, the readers get, I mean, a lot of golf magazines, let's be honest, are just PR rags for, or, you know, PR sort of entities for club makers, uh, you know, the course, um, tourism industry. And, you know, to an extent, that's okay. As long as they, are honest about that. I mean, if it's, that's why the, why blogs and podcasts and, and, you know, they are refreshing. Now the issue that we've got in, in all sports, not just in golf is that quotes have become the currency access is the currency. So if you then um, are excluded from 
an event, if the European Tour or the PGA don't like what you're saying, and they say, and they have ultimate um, yay or nay on whether or not you actually get into the event, and that can make the life of a golf journalist very difficult. And you know that's that's becoming increasingly the case. If you look at say the IPL in India, they are very very uh, uh, well. They've gone a route which we would find fairly repellent in trying to you know essentially control what the media says, the, the what gets what gets written about. So all of that is a, is, a, is a sort of movement which I've always fought against. It's very difficult because it's structural. It's not, again, again you know, you're right. I know a load of golf journalists and I, you know, and I like them a lot, but it's, it's a structural thing. It's not something that is, uh, you know, necessarily something an individual can do, do much about. But the media has got, its, got itself into this position where you, the, they need or they feel they need quotes from the horse's mouth you know, and, and most of the time they're, they're not worth the paper they're written on, but it does the, it establishes the difference between mainstream media and a blog. So the definition um, of a, you know, a, a, if a national newspaper um, golf journalist or sports journalist has access and therefore can go and talk to the golfer, that is you know, at the point of difference between that and, and say, a blogger in their bedroom tapping out copy about an opinion stuff about golf. Yeah, you're, you're not in your bedroom, are you, Shaq? I hope you, you've got an office there at home, which is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Serves its purpose. Shaq, that sound I heard there, I'm sure, as Richard was talking, was a can of worms opening. This is a hugely deep issue that's not just about golf, isn't it? This is about the new media and the new world we live in. Because, of course, the flip side of what you're saying there, Richard, which is all true, getting access and all is, is such a currency. But, of course, the players themselves now, those who we want to hear from, have their own channels. Uh, and there are some yeah. who are very yeah. good at it. Poulter and Donald on Twitter, I think of. Westwood yeah. have got himself into a bit of trouble on Twitter, but it was about the most interesting thing that happened on Twitter. Many times. <laughs> Earlier this year was when he was being honest after a few cans. So it's kind of this, it seems to me, Richard, none of us in this new world have worked out how it works. If you talk to Clates about the old days, journos would go to the golf, and when you walked off, the journos would talk to you and you'd talk to them. They'd write their story. Then you'd meet in the bar and you'd have a few drinks. People would get drunk, do stupid things, and didn't turn up in the paper. That doesn't happen yeah. anymore, has it? There's this awkward gotcha thing where the journos are pressured into revealing stuff they wouldn't have 20 years ago, which has made the players reticent about talking to them or, or hanging with them or getting to know them. So we miss those great stories and, and looks at people, don't we, that, that, that uh, journos used to be able to bring, but you just can't anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, you're right. I think ultimately what we're looking at is, you know, a future when, you know, the big stars can bypass mm. the media. They don't need the media in the same way. I mean, this is happening in film, isn't it? You know, the, the, you, you, you don't, Brad Pitt doesn't need to talk to Entertainment Magazine anymore. He doesn't need to talk to Vanity Fair. He might do, but he's got more followers than they have. And so, you know, he, if he wants to get a message out, he can do it directly and he doesn't need to be filtered by journalists and, and um, mainstream media or blogs, you know. So that's, that's the future and it's, it's, it can go one of two ways and, and is going one of two ways. One, it's that it is an authentic voice, perhaps. The other more worrying sign is that, that Twitter is, is – what's happened to, to the media is happening to Twitter. So Twitter is becoming more sanitized. It's becoming more PR'd. Um, the message is being more controlled. I mean, Tiger Woods's uh, Twitter feed is, is, you know, is not a barrel of fun to follow on a regular basis because it's just it's <laughs> PR, it's PR messages, you know, and that's that's one way of that's what a PR agency does, and that's what sports marketing uh, does to um, 
the message. It, it needs to control the message. That's the whole point of it. Shaq, do you reckon Tiger even knows his Twitter login? In all honesty, <clears throat> would he I'd put it at a. I'd say about it is about a fifty percent chance he knows. Yeah, it's he has tweeted a few times on his own, but no, it's uh, somebody else. I think does most of them. What's your take yeah. on all of that, Shaq? Does, is that effective? I can't imagine that. I don't follow Tiger on Twitter, but obviously I know a few mil, few million people do. I don't know what they're hoping to glean from it. I mean, he says about as much on Twitter as he does in the average press conference. But do you think that's, yeah. that's effective for him? What's your take? Um, well, he circumvented the, the, the press with uh, his last few bits of, of news that he's had to reveal, and he's done it through that. But uh, I just did a story on Twitter for Golf World, and... I asked a few players if they saw the day coming where they would never speak to us. They would just put their message out there after the round. And they said absolutely not. Poulter, Brant Snedeker, some interesting people who used Twitter fairly well said no way. No, no, no. Uh, but I don't know if I, I buy that entirely. Um, but I would say that the players who are more fun on Twitter – who show you a little bit of their personality are uh, are are better received on Twitter, and that Tiger, it's just another thing that people see as him being somewhat synthetic. Whereas if Jordan Spieth is uh, uh, tweeting comments during a basketball game and getting excited, or Ian Poulter's getting into a spat with uh, Lee Westwood over whose uh, uh, hairstyle was more uh, uh, goofy and tweeting photographs, you start to see a side to them that's that's a lot of fun. So. In that sense, it's very effective and powerful. And in fact, I spoke with Jordan Spieth about this because his dad's doing something in social media, and and, and his comment was he he's very well aware that he he has to do some corporate things, but he absolutely will keep t- total control over his account because uh, he 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 wants to not become just a uh, a drone sending out messages and. People like Ricky Fowler have done that very well so far, but who knows the way Twitter's going? It, it's hard to say uh, how effective it'll be. Effective it will be going forward. I think it's going to continue to do uh, to be huge, and especially in sports. What, what's your take there? Because of course, Poulter and those guys are kind of a crossover generation, aren't they? Twitter started after they sort of come to public life. What about future? What about the kids out there now who are? 10, 11, 12, who are the Rory McIlroy's and the Tiger Woods's of the future, will they get a chance to even think about things this way or will they be kind of um, taught from an early age that this is how you use Twitter, this is how you deal with the press? I know the PGA Tour have like an orientation thing for they do. about media training and this sort of stuff, <clears> which just terrifies me. I hate the thought of that. But is that the way the world's going to end up, Richard? Will we end up where you really don't see anything of anybody because it's all this sanitised public stuff? Well, to answer your question about the young ones coming through, I mean, I think an interesting example of where, you know, if you look at some sports are handling this brilliantly. So um, I'm not a big fan of UFC, Ultimate Fighting Club, as, a, as an entity. I don't, you know, I don't watch it. It's not for me. But as a, the way in which they've, they, I mean, they incentivize fighters via Twitter. So the more followers they get, the more prize money they get, the more people they deliver to an event. Um, So it's, you know, it's cultivating a, you know, it's a culture where social media is actually at the center rather than an add on. And it's always, you know, and in fairness, in golf, it's, it's an add on, some of them get it, some of them understand it and want to engage in it. And some, and you know, are brilliant at it. But and a lot of them don't, you know, and, and, but 
other sports are getting it. Young, the, as you say, the real danger is that you'll 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 get a whole generation of sort of um, Macaulay Culkin types who come on and are just sort of <laughs> Good oddly, you know. <laughs> You know, oddly confident and and just you know peculiarly sort of comfortable in front of the media at a very early age, and that's that's no fun either. So we want you know it's when Twitter, if if Twitter stops being entertaining, we'll go on to something else. You know, and that's Twitter's problem. Um, but if it becomes sanitized and and as you say, media training, there's nothing that that has wrecked public discourse more than media training, in my opinion. Um, then that's that's a problem and that's but it just becomes boring and we disengage so um the problem i mean one of the issues we have and one of the i've got sympathy for i mean you mentioned jordan spieth and you know as from a distance i've never met him i've i've got you know i like him as a as a personality um it's very difficult not to be a drone if you're being asked the same question every you Mm. know uh 20 minutes and and everyone you know every journalist asks the same question there are more and more journalists more and more media um, and it's really difficult to be spontaneous every time. So I've got a lot of sympathy from that point of view, and I can see the reality of it. Um, and it might be a question of you know narrowing down how much they do, which won't please a lot of the, the media. They want access, and they call you know call foul when when they don't get access. So it's quite it's it's more complex than yeah. uh, than just being. Uh, you know, it's he's good on Twitter. He's not very good on Twitter. You know, there's a, there's a right. lot more to it than that. I want you chaps to, chaps to just keep chatting. I'm going to get Clates on the phone. He's been told not to speak yeah. when he answers, but you'll hear a ringing sound. Just ignore it. That'll be uh, us getting Clates on. So <laughs> away you go, Shaq. Keep Richard engaged well, while I deal well, with Clates. What you brought up there with Spieth, he is so incredible in front of the, the media, and, and I actually brought this point up on Monday on the Golf Channel. Uh, he's so polished, he's so smooth that he, uh, he you forget that he's 20 years old sometimes, and that's... Uh, so yeah, these people are actually writing him off because uh, uh, he's not closing on Sundays. You know, he's been playing on the tour for a year. It's incredible. Um, but on this subject of youth, uh, one of the things you do so well on your your blog is discuss the uh, millennials and the obsession. It's your favorite them. topic, though, Jeff. It, it is. Well, I'm you're now becoming, you're becoming obsessed I, with this. In I've fact, at least fact, learned. Well, I have no choice. Uh, the world I live in, I, I, I can't go a day without hearing about the millennials. I now know how to spell it correctly, which was a big step. Um, in fact, you, you, you've made up a – I saw the word millennialism on your uh, blog. Yeah. Page, I, think, I, I think you've just made a word up there. You're, I did. You're, you know, I did. you're playing with the English language a bit. Yeah, it's all right. It's very close to minimalism, which we use all the time So uh, for golf <laughs> architecture. But um, – we're, we're just obsessed with them here. Uh, our magazine, Golf Digest, is transitioning to appeal more to these people. Uh, yeah. We're worried about the future of golf because the millennials uh, are maybe not playing as much as their, their, uh, their parents. Could you help us explain why golf in particular and these corporations are so obsessed with people who really don't have a lot of spending money? Yeah. Well... It's interesting. I mean, I've just come from this the uh, HSBC Golf Business Forum, okay, and so in Abu Dhabi um, last week. Now, that's if you want to worry about millennials, that that's the place to go and do it because you've got a lot of people, uh, you know, who have invested. Golf obviously is is made up of, as we know, several very very large multi billion dollar industries. So when you get the golf business together, actually, you're talking to people who are owning. 
hotel chains or the you know property developers as well as the coal, the, the club manufacturers etc now the the received wisdom is that the millennials yes we know that they don't they're not taking it up in the same numbers but they're also not spending the same amount as the boomers did in their you know when at the same stage so there is a hole in the golf economy and it's a sort of demographic time bomb of, of sort without over-egging it but you know you talk to someone like Dana Garmany who's chief executive of True mm. whose opinion I take very seriously on yeah. a lot of issues now he just says well it's just you know they're not they're spending a small fraction so we can bend over backwards and get them playing, but actually what they spend around golf on holidays, on, on you know, all the stuff that um, we do and our parents did, they're not spending in the same amount. And it's going to ha- make a heck of a seismic change. So the decision now, because golf is so slow moving, the decision, if you're a property developer and, and it used to be, well, I'm, you know, here's a plot of land in Vietnam should I build a golf course? And, and the answer might well be yes, if you're a hotel chain or if you want to sell, sell houses. Now, that question is changing quite rapidly. So, you know, maybe, no, I won't build a golf course. I'll build something, you know, a, a forest that they can run mm-hmm. around in and do parkour or do yeah. extreme sports or whatever. So there, there are mm-hmm. some very long-term issues related to it. One of the things I found really interesting and one of the, the, one of the, the points I want to make is that um, is the lack of, or the, the, the number of myths that are being sort of put about about millennials because there's, there's a sort of received wisdom that they are very into tech, that they want tech at all times, that they want um, – that they, they need to engage and they're communicating all the time. And actually, you know, a lot of the evidence is that they are the first generation who are becoming absolutely sick of tech. You know, they don't, they don't want to talk anymore. You know, there is a – just as large a group of this of this um, demographic who just want to cut off they want to go off grid and it, the taking that and transposing that into golf it make you get some interesting thoughts because actually one of the issues that again take you know focusing on millennials they want short form golf you know and uh, you and I and everyone in you know on this podcast has heard the 2020 cricket argument several times and the presentations this is going to be a golf needs a short form um and because millennials can't they don't grasp complexity they need everything to be 90 minutes long because football is popular and 2020 is popular and there are a lot of pretty flaky bits of research a lot of flawed thinking and quite lazy thinking around that so one option is actually that golf clubs become a haven for technology you cut it all off mm. it's you don't allow you know they're, they're, it's going the right way huh. be the only place where you don't have a mobile phone is one one future for golf clubs which you know some would say that's what they are already that's two cans um, of worms you've opened already richard there was one earlier <laughs> as well <laughs> <laughs> You're really touching some nerves. J- just to clarify, first things first, uh, Michael Clayton has now joined us. Clayton, I did have a little intro written for you. It was very nice. You miss out because you're a bit late. Welcome. We're chatting with Richard Gillis, obviously. Sorry about that. I forgot to set my alarm. It's, anyway, <laughs> well, it is a little early. That's right. Yeah, well, it, it is a little early down here in Australia. That's right. We're about to tick over to six o'clock. Just ignore, excuse my ignorance. What is a millennial? Who are we talking about? Well, you know, Jeff knows this. He, he writes about them every day. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, who are millennials? <laughs> Uh, they're 18 to 34 and they don't have any money. I'm still, I'm sorry not to leave that, but they, I just, at least in the United States, they don't have any money, but they're, uh, 18 to 34. I don't know. What years were they born, Richard? I don't know. 
So I think, yeah, so you're right. So it's 80, I reckon, yeah, 18, depending, there's a sort of fluid definition, but yeah, eight, about around 18 to, to 30, 18 to 32. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, the, again, the, the, a lot of the talk is that they have grown up, they play computer games, they're obese, uh-huh. they're techs, you know, all of these things are, are just, it's fairly lazy, but you can see that the golf industry is trying to is working and using that flawed information to change itself quite radically. And and the question that I always wonder is whether or not they've got that right. You know, and I, I'm not sure that they have. And I, in particular, the 2020 cricket example um, is one that is, I think, being misread quite badly. I think 2020 mm. cricket is is about money as much as anything else. It's it, you know as, as much as format. And don't please don't tell me that a that a 20 year old can't understand complexity, given that you know my daughter is sitting on a computer game right now and is, has been for the last you know 10 hours. So. Um, that's not true, by the way. In case you want, <laughs> I'm just you know, Get I'm making I'm making Richard. a point. I'm, you yes. know, I'm making a point to, uh, but uh, you know, selling complexity, golf, and Test cricket. It's the same argument about Test cricket that actually they should it should be celebrating its complexity. It should be finding new ways. It, it's Test um, golf four day golf is like a box set. You know, where the biggest shows in the last ten years have been the Wire, the Sopranos, deeply complex. Mm. Stuff that yeah. you need to binge and spend a great deal of time on, and the and the message is that okay, if you're not smart enough to understand this, then just spend a bit more time, and that's what millennials love doing. Now, I don't hear that argument in the marketing of golf because what marketing does is tends to want to simplify the message, and it wants to have short solutions, and so it's you know 2020 has been handed to the sports industry in a way that and, and you know every sport is trying to find its mm. 2020, and and no one I would argue has done it successfully. I've got a two-parter for you on that, Richard. It's actually on my list of questions here. You've touched on a couple of them. Uh, You say on your blog, golf club manufacturers have developed a one-club strategy. All they try to sell is distance. And I think you've quoted somebody, I think, from Callaway who told you that their marketing department, their job is to own the distance conversation. And you don't have to look too far to see the results of that. The first part of the question, should they, in fact, be trying to sell other parts of the game, which... Which goes into the second part of the question, which is they complain about growing the game and they want the game to grow, but do manufacturers themselves and we in golf do anything to market the game outside of already committed golfers? When you own the distance conversation, you talk to already engaged golfers. It doesn't bring anyone. If you don't play golf, you don't care if Callaway hits it further than TaylorMade. That doesn't get you into the game. Once you're in, you might care about those things and it's, you decide on a spend. So what about those two things? I mean, TaylorMade having this hack golf and all the rest of it and wanting to grow mm. the game, et cetera, et cetera. What are, they, what, what are they or what could they do actually outside of golf to actually grow the game? When do they talk to non-golfers? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, one of the, if you listened, you know, and, and if, you, if you purely listen to the marketing messages, if, if that's all you hear about golf is the marketing messages of TaylorMade, Callaway, Nike, you know, uh, Titleist – pretty much you would get the impression that golf is about smashing the ball as hard and as far as you possibly can. Um, and, uh, that's about it. And, you know, that's, it's, it's sort of, there is a macho element to it, obviously, and it's incredibly tedious, um, and completely sells the game short, as we all know, you know, it's not about that, but, 
You're right in that you know that if if that is a way of trying to attract new people into golf, then you know who are you? What what are you going to do? You're going to come into golf thinking it's about that, and then suddenly you find that actually it's not. And we need all the you know. It, I've yet to see it. It comes down to this. It's the same argument I think is that the complexity is more difficult to shove through a marketing channel, and when yeah. things get pushed through a marketing channel simple messages are required and obviously tailor-made as you know and and um mark king has, has made an interesting statement at the beginning of the year with his hat golf um now the question that mark king has to you know he's just got a new job now he's you know it's he's gone from tailor-made to head of adidas north america so he's got a very big job now the question he's that, that they've got those guys is actually can you make a statement that isn't about flogging golf clubs you know, is is and the the criticism, not the criticisms, but just the 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 perception that TaylorMade is obviously in the game of trying to get us to spend more money on golf clubs. It's great. It's a public limited company, and therefore growth is very important. So, as Jeff put on his blog the other day, you know, how many product new product launches over a period of time? It's not just TaylorMade, but you know, they're the, they're the most obvious and the most successful. Um, you can't just keep on. I mean, uh, we've been saying this for a while, but you can't just keep on just plowing, putting new drivers on the market, hoping something, you know, that sales growth will just continue. Because actually, the collateral damage on golf is actually, I think, it is damaging. You know, and I think mm. that, that uh, I don't see much nuanced marketing around skill. I don't see much about, you know, the, the, all of the stuff that we love about golf, I don't see that in the marketing messages that I'm seeing. Actually, and that's a, that's a worry. Don't you actually oh, see yeah. the opposite, Richard? Nike and Titleist over the last 10 or 15 years have brought out various ads, in fact, poking fun at anybody who loves the tradition of the game. Yeah. You know, yeah. They're, they're to be scoffed at. You know, the title. Who, what did John Cleese play, the Titleist character? Who was yes, uh, Ian McAllister. Yeah, banging on about the distance of the ball. He was to be, you know, had, have fun poked at him, you know, uh, old folks. And Nike... Here. Nike has a new campaign on that. Yeah, Same thing. That's right. Uh, so, in fact, we're getting Titleist. Titleist, though, to their credit, uh, did end that, and they have they uh, because their their customer base is very into the, uh, the traditions and history of the game, and I think they recognize that now. And they, I don't sense they're going to go that that route. Clates, Richard said was suggesting that you know you can't keep doing this stuff where you know trying to convince people that you know you got to buy the next driver, the next driver, the next driver. I wonder whether and you play golf with quite a few young people. Have we perhaps almost bred a generation of people for whom that is what golf is about? I go on a couple of golf forums, and one in particular, that's all it's about. You know, clubs are barely released. The words barely hit the market that Taylor Maid's brought out a new driver. Four blokes will have it, and within three weeks, they'll be on selling that new driver to go and try something else. So, in your experience, and the people you play with, do you see much of that? Are we already in danger? Perhaps the rest of golf has kind of been lost to this consumer cycle. Where you've got to have the latest club. No, not so much. I mean, I mean, the kids I play with have. They're good players who don't pay for their clubs and they, they get them from Nike and Callaway and they, they kind of get these drivers set up for them that are perfect and um, they, they don't seem to fall around with them too much. I mean, they're always getting new wedges and trying new, I mean, trying new three-irons and two-irons. And, really? Two-irons? Can, well, can you still buy a two-iron? Well, I convinced, well, Sue Sue's now got a three-iron and a four-iron in her bag. I said, you need to get rid of those hybrids and start playing with some proper clubs. You want to win the British Open, you better learn to hit a low-running three-iron. So, I mean, she's ripping three-irons now. She's really well. But, um, 
Would the game be better off if, if, if every manufacturer went out of business? Um, this is the stuff I'm talking about, Richard. Before you came on, Clates, we were talking about why this show is popular, and that's one of the reasons. <laughs> uh, because you'll say stuff that others won't. I don't know, Richard. Would the game be better off if manufacturers went out of business? Something's happened to golf, hasn't it? It didn't used to be a consumer game, Richard. Golf was a, a recreational game. You bought a set of clubs. Most likely, you probably kept all of them for 15 or 20 years. You, you didn't change clubs. And it's changed completely, has it not, in the last 15 years? But it's all because it, it's because they're all publicly traded companies or part of large publicly traded companies. Is that correct? I mean, it, this attitude changed with that, did it not? I think so. I mean, I think, to, I mean, yes, the big ones certainly are, and that drives the, the product cycle. But to Clay's point, you know, it is a good point because, you know, the <laughs> their argument is that we're, make, we're trying to make this game easier. And, again, it's, it's a good argument that. It's a good, you know, that, that actually big-headed drivers – Okay, they go further and whatever, but actually they do make it easier and the clubs are easier to hit than they were. And a thriving golf economy does need a thriving club manufacturers um, group because that's, you know, it's just an indicator of, of good health. I guess the problem you, or the, you know, you've, you then get to this argument about bifurcation, but you also get to the point about, you know, the people like the RNA and the USGA who are trying to balance golf. has got this thing going on. It's not just in the club market. It's in other areas as well about trying to be about the past and the future at the same time, trying to, you know, I guess the point I'm making is to answer uh, or to come back to Clates there. He's right. We do need a club manufacturer base. The, the golf, industry generally is trying to balance these two things mm. trying to be about the past and the future mm. trying to be about traditional values but also be a, you know can it be about technology and um moving things forward now one of the criticisms of the rna is that it's anti-technology now that's an unfair criticism it's not it's a too broad a stroke too broad a brush statement but actually trying to link those two together is really quite difficult and it's it takes real you know um, long-term thinking, and, and if you're a company, it would be a lot of sort of brand strategy involved there. Brand strategy, goodness me, Shaq's going to have a heart attack if you keep talking like that. Clates, what's your take? <laughs> on that? What's the point you're making there? If, if manufacturers, I, I know you've said this about the golf cart manufacturers before too. You know, if club car went out of business tomorrow, would golf be a worse game? What's your thinking? What are you trying to? Sort, what's the point you're trying to make there? Well, the, the, we're just obsessed with buying more and more stuff. And I mean, everyone complains the game's too expensive. I mean, unquestionably, the game's never been easier to play. It's ridiculous how easy golf is now relative to what it was when I was a kid. And it was ridiculous how easy it was then relative to when Bobby Jones was playing, when that was when golf was properly hard. And there was a balance between, there was a proper balance between the golf course and the equipment. I mean, now that, I mean, when Jones played and Varden and those guys, the, the balance was tipped in favour of the golf course over the equipment. And then it, Persimmon and Steele and Ballada and Serlin even that balance up. For a long time, the balance was pretty good. Now the balance is way the other way where the golf courses are completely um, outmatched by the equipment. So the game's never been easier. But, um, I mean, yeah, it was just, just people endlessly spending money on new clubs. It's, I mean, the game is fine. We just, I mean, as we say, to, to me, it's about as we've said many times. It's about being out with your friends, playing playing golf courses. And to me, the answer goes back. I mean, people need to start reading Alice McKenzie's book again about you know people get bored with golf because it's the golf course that makes them bored with golf. The golf courses aren't interesting enough. 
yeah, yeah, that's the. He was, you know, how do you make fascinating golf courses to play so that people continually want to play that play the holes and figure out how to hit the shots? So, if every course was as as, as interesting as the old course, the game would be doing fine, I think. Professional right. golf's got a lot to answer for in this, doesn't it, Clates? Because that's right. the product we dish up to people. And as television and golf have become bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, what we see on TV week in and week out is what people start to demand. And in, frankly, what we get dished up on TV every week is not great golf courses. Well, it's so utterly dumbed down. And, and it's all about, you know, the pros have driven this um, drive for fairness and equity of punishment. So you go and see the Craft Nabisco, you go and see a golf course where every fellow has the exact same width and everyone who hits the ball into different parts of the golf course gets, gets exactly the same lie. When the fun of golf is dealing with the unfairness of it, but we've beaten all the unfairness of it out and the equipment tries to beat all the unpredictability of it out. So, and that gets back to Richard's point about getting away from the complexity of it. It just, you know, we've tried to dumb it down and make it so simple it's incredible. Whereas, you know, the, the old course is the greatest course and the most complex course. Yet, no one's learned the lessons of that or Mackenzie's book. Or, you know, he went around the world making incredibly complex golf courses that were. And the last thing he wanted to make the game was fair. I mean, who says Augusta National is fair? Hmm. Yeah. Richard, can we sell hmm. Clates' message there? It's essentially a negative message, isn't it? But can that message be marketed? I mean, I suppose part of the message is you've got it wrong. Let's start to get it right. But those things that he talked about, can you market those, do you think, successfully to a new generation? Uh, I think, well, I mean, it's a big statement, but I think you can. Um, it just depends on if people's commercial sort of uh, future is tied to it, you know, and or they see, or we can, you know, there is an argument. If you ask Peter Dawson that, he would say, Yes, of course we can, but we just need to control the ball. We need to, and essentially, as soon it's it's you're controlling and limiting the future. And as soon as you start to send that message, that's a that's a got a dangerous message for a sport commercially to sell, because it can't be just about the past all the time. It has to be selling the future, and it has to evolve, and it has to be a, a future that companies can buy into and sell their shareholders. And you know, we're living in the real world, but he's you know, Clates is right in the. The, the, there has to be I think it comes as I say it comes back to this idea that people can't handle complexity because I think they can mm -hmm. and I think that um, we see this in lots of different areas whether they can whether you can market it at the scale that Nike and Adidas need to market to is a different question mm. um, but I certainly think you can get that across and, and as you know Shaq said that there, there are companies and you know, in that in that space, who are putting out more complicated messages or complex messages because they know that their audience wants to hear them. But it's it's a question of scale and just the noise that the big ones make. They're so their marketing muscle is so big and so is so significant that it out it crowds out all the other messages. I guess is is what we're saying. Last one, then I want you to have some questions, Shaq. But I, I, I was reading your blog this morning, so I've got a million questions to ask, Richard. In the about section of your blog, one of the things yeah. you state is one of your beliefs is that firms in several sectors stopped caring about their customers some time ago. In these sectors, marketing's job is to cover that crack. Is golf one of those sectors? Um, no. I, well, I mean, I think that what I'm talking about there is is broader than certainly broader than golf but there are 
areas of, of golf where you see a sort of complacency or a, uh, an arrogance in relation to the customer perhaps. Um, but I don't, I, you know, that I wasn't making that point in relation to, in relation to golf. I'm thinking more about, you know, energy banking, you know, some big, big players. So, you know, it, it was a, it was a statement that wasn't related to golf particularly, but having said that, obviously, if the customer then stops being thought about or is cared about, there are problems afoot, you know, and, and that can happen on a small scale. It can happen on a big scale as well. Banking and energy. That's three cans of worms, Richard. That's your last warning. You, get, <laughs> you only get three cans of worms on any given show. We're, we're, not, we're not delving into, uh, into any of that. Shaq, I've been very much hogging Richard's time here. I'm sure. No, it's okay. No, no. I'm, I'm enjoying all of it. Uh, the one thought I, I, I I'm curious what Richard has to say. We we have a lot of interest in the television ratings here, and when Tiger doesn't play, a million and a half, two million people don't generally watch a major. Um, and I'm I'm wondering. In fact, uh, there was a ridiculous item on uh, Golf.com recently that that took the percentage drop in the ratings. Use that, uh, cut that percentage from the dollar figure that that golf generates, and declared that's a fifteen billion dollar hit would be taken when he's uh, while he's gone, and it was just absurd. But I, I am curious what your sense is of these corporations uh, who funnel so much money into golf. Uh, if those ratings are really that important, or they're more interested in the the wealth of the the average. Uh, core audience member that that uh, seems to be very well off and seems to be doing very well. Um, what in terms of what, when Tiger well, goes, you mean? Yeah, what's more important, right? uh, of uh, masses watching our sport and and obsessing about golf, or a higher quality audience uh, with more spending power uh, watching golf? I'm going to use the phrase "high-end eyeballs" at this point. Yes, perfect. Dear, <laughs> that, dear. That, that would have been that was the phrase I was going for if I knew what it uh, meant. But I have some idea what it means. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> and I was joking about that. So don't you know? Just don't worry. But the um, well, you can you can argue this to the cows come home. But obviously, golf has sold itself as being a, a you know an upmarket sport, and therefore um, can can charge a higher price in terms of, of for, for certain areas in terms of sponsorship and perhaps the you know associated advertising um, the point I'd make about the, the tiger thing and I saw that golf.com thing as well and, and I, I don't know what the figure was that they came up with but it's I think what we're, what we're seeing here and what we see a lot when we talk about the influence of Tiger on the, on golf. And, you know, there is a sort of feeling that when he goes, it's going to be a calamity. And we are, you know, the other, again, which I think is a myth and I've got a pet theory on here, which I've got very little to, to uh, substantiate it, but um, Tiger's career corresponds with a huge boom in media rights across the board. So the Tiger boom is a little bit of a myth. In the, I'm not saying that he hasn't been great for golf. I'm not saying that he hasn't brought new advertisers in, and I'm not saying any of that. But actually, look around. You know, tennis hasn't had a tiger. Uh, Premier League football hasn't had a tiger, and they've all been. The, the, you know, the arrow on their media rights income has been going in the same direction. So we attribute too much credit to Tiger. Um, 
yes, he's been great. But and yes, of course, the 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 sort of short term blips when he's not in the crowd, when he's not in the uh, field, also have a a sort of have an impact. Uh, and yes, Federer, I know that you're about to come back and say that, but he doesn't have the he doesn't have the same um, uh, impact. He's not had the same impact, I would argue, as as Woods. But that that sort of twenty year period of of huge media rights growth, media fragmentation. That means that sponsorship has come into the into sport in a bigger way. Sponsorship has been outgrowing advertising for the last decade. It's it's just like a sort of you know, it, it, all of the all of the arrows are going up, and because Ty, we're we're in danger of linking Tiger or or attributing Tiger to all of that. And actually, I don't think that's true. And therefore, the argument would suggest that golf will, of course, suffer a post-Tiger blip, but it's not going to be as calamitous as the guy at Golf.com thinks. And the truth, Richard, is he never he never drove actual participation either. Even during the Tiger, you know, Tiger mania. Um, all the figures suggested lots more people watched golf. Very few people knew people. Very few new people took up golf. Uh, there was no actual cut through there, was there? So, yes, Clates. Uh, Richard can see what we're typing here, so we need to be <laughs> a bit more careful with our guests. <laughs> what if Federer was American, as Clates has just asked? There would that have been a difference, Richard? Well, you know, every every sport has stars, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's. We could argue the toss about you know the the value of Woods and Federer, and and but. But it's obvious that that stars drive sporting interest to an extent. Um, but there is a limit, and it's structural. It's not, you know. I, I think Tiger and and Federer and Nadal and all the people, you know, the great players in every sport, they have an impact in in particular markets. But they don't drive media rights to the extent that that you know double digit growth over a period of twenty five years. Yeah, that won't. Golf nearly doubled, didn't it? Um, I think when they when did they renegotiate? Shaq? I mean, Tiger turned pro ninety six. I think they renegotiated the contracts in maybe ninety eight. Uh, if I'm right about that, and it was double by ninety eight. What the previous one was literally double, yeah. in value. Yeah. Was, so the, what think, you're saying is that you know the, the so NBC have just signed up. You know what's the multiple that they just signed up for the Olympics? You know and. Are we going to attribute that to Tiger's no, no, appearance no, no, in Rio? You know, it, I, I actually think I, I think I agree with you, Richard. But there's probably a double thing happened there. Golf went, TV went crazy for for Woods between sort of '96 and 2000. At the same time as all rights were going through the roof as well, so you probably had a double effect there on uh, on golf. Clayton, oh. you, you typed it earlier. Harry Styles. Um, We'll come back to Tiger's appearance in London and Sydney, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. You typed earlier, Harry Styles, Richard was talking about sort of youth and those sorts of things, and you mentioned this on the last show as well. Huggy wrote a piece in Golf Australia magazine, as I finally found it after a couple of Shaq's readers asked about it, uh, in Golf Australia magazine about Harry Styles playing golf and, and the importance of that for golf. But what, are you, what, are you, what's, what are you trying to sort of get at there, Clay? You obviously think there's something about that that's kind of important that maybe golf is missing. Well, my wife's a bit of a fan, I have to admit, but... Um... <laughs> I don't think you're alone there, Clates. There might be a couple of million blokes around the world who could say that. She goes in these blogs and these kids are asking, you know, what, what's that thing his ball's sitting on? And there was something, ah. he had a lesson from Dave Stockton the other day and, you know, it was Stockton said he shoots in the 80s and all these girls are going, what does that mean? So, so there's a whole, you know, there's a massive crowd of people who don't know nothing about who are, you know, if, if you want to introduce golf to a different generation, and there are so many cool people who play golf, and you know, has a reputation as such a daggy old man sport. Yet there's so many cool people who play it. 
And you know, Huggy's point was, is Harry Styles more important to the game of golf than Ricky Fowler? And I mean, no one knows who Ricky Fowler is outside of golf, but everyone knows who Harry Styles is. So you know, there's a kid who's a golf nut who played, he came down to Australia when they did their concerts down here, and he was playing almost every day. And you know, the question is, do you market the game through all the cool people who play other sports and who are in music who who play the game and love it? Richard, does that do more to grow the game than a 15-inch cup? I think it's a, I think it's a you know a really good point. I mean, one question I'd ask is is what are the PGA, what are the authorities doing to make to make use of Harry Styles? And I would argue not much. Nothing. Well, just a minute, interrupt. Huggy and I were playing with John Paramore at the World Cup last year. As you and would. Paramore said, you know, the main rules official at the European Tour. Famously penalised the Chinese kid two shots, but that's all right. Good on him. Um, <laughs> he said, what do we do to Greg Cobb? I said, well, get Harry Styles to play in the prime of the British PGA with Justin Rose at Wentworth in May. So, I mean, my, my bet is that he won't be playing, but, you know. <clears throat> Don't make that, him wear long socks and long pants and a shirt with a collar and put his hat on the right way. Either. Oh no! He, but have you ever seen him dressed? By the way, not I to get uh, no. not to get into a rat hole here on uh, Harry Styles' <laughs> style. But I'm always I always get a chuckle because he he uh, he walks a lot. He's got the double strap bag and he he wears logoed shirts and he kind of dresses like a golfer. But um, uh, it's an interesting topic because, as you know, Golf Digest has taken a lot of heat lately for putting. Uh, people on the cover who are not helping you gain 10 yards and i just wonder sometimes if golf if you look at justin timberlake if golf keeps getting these these gifts of sorts with pop culture people who love the sport and we then you hear this this backlash that it's uh well that's you know the game's not about celebrities it's about uh the 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 core values i mean it's just yeah and i i i it just it just blows my mind how we uh we we seem to kind of mess up these opportunities to say, hey, you know, cool people like the sport too. Mm. Which you, me and Clayton, sadly, probably aren't considered cool. We are not. No. Shaq, interesting. You mentioned the new direction of Golf Digest, and I wanted to ask Richard about this. One of their cover stories on this new relaunch Digest, I assume you've probably seen some of this on Shaq's site, yeah. was to go to Colorado and see what it's like for people playing golf when they're stoned because marijuana is legal in, in Colorado and some states. And anyway, I think there was another story I saw a couple of their senior riders tweeting about at the driving range seeing what effect alcohol has on the ability to hit the golf ball. Um, yeah. How does this play in new golf? Is this what we need? I don't see personally how any of that's of any interest to, to golfers generally, but are they doing the right thing? Are those sorts of stories more appealing to people who don't yet play golf but might, then how to hit it 10 yards further or what really goes on inside Rory McIlroy when he's trying to win a major? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, think, it's, it's, I, I think it's good. You know, I, I think it's all great. Whether or not the question is whether or not people who don't play golf read Golf Digest is, is probably a, a tricky one. Um, but so if you're We all to go bring... to the dentist, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't you know, I'm a golf, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a golf digest fan. I'm just saying, I, you know, it's, it's, it wouldn't be the place where a whole congregation of, of hip millennials um, who don't yeah. like golf are congregated. But that, but that, you know, I've lived through the golf punk era over here, oh, um, yes. and that came and went, mm. and that was sort of at the beginning. That was a refreshing thing, and it became a sort of almost a caricature of itself um, because it felt a bit forced. You know, I've been at golf 
golf events. I remember being at St. Andrews and the editor of Golf Punk in its later years um, was sitting there with a cardboard cutout of a golfer, you know, and it just felt, God, you know, it's come to this. You know, it's like a sort of, it's really, uh, it, it just felt a bit like, uh, as I say, forced. But I'm all for all for new stuff, obviously. I think probably it's blogs that will do it. Mm. You know, and it's it's digital and it's Twitter that will uh, that will take the, the the message out. But you know, to, to answer your question, I think it's great. Mm. I'm not sure that I do. So, well, maybe we uh, agree. Well, why not? What's wrong with it? I just uh, golf's. A, I suppose I'm probably of a different generation. Golf's a different thing. I don't care what it's like to play golf high. If I want to do that, I'll try it myself. And I need to read about it in Digest. I guess that's what I'm, I'm more interested in. And, and the old Digest is what I always love. The US Golf Digest. And Clates is probably the same. When they used to have six pages of a Q and A with a you know an interesting golfer, be it Weisskopf or Davis Love or Payne Stewart. And it was those sorts of things you were talking about before, Richard, earlier about, you know, in-depth uh, stories with golfers saying things that are actually of interest and real. Mm. That's what I liked about Golf Digest. And I find that, I don't know, that what they've done seems to me is to try and make print into the internet. This sort of, you know, everything's got to be a 30-second grab. Nothing can be more than 200 words because people can't read it. It's about that complexity you were talking about. I don't think that's true, but everyone seems to be chasing that. And I think that's a shame because Golf Digest, in my eyes, was a once great publication. And that, to me, doesn't feel like they're continuing to be a great publication. Not that those particular stories aren't necessarily worth exploring, but to make that, to get on the front foot and say, this is what the new Golf Digest is all about, I think kind of misses the point of golf. I don't know. Am I nuts, Clay, yeah. or is that <clears throat> sensible? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's got to be all things for all people, but... I mean, those interviews they did were the, that was the best thing they'd ever done. I thought. I mean, I mean, that was brilliant. They were a fantastic series of. And, and you knew they were because you got to the end, and you were sad. You wanted to keep reading more. That's how you knew it was great stuff. Yeah, having been lucky enough to sit down with Tom Weisskopf once for four hours, it was the most one of the most interesting four hours I ever spent in my life. It was just you know we we could still be seeing that. You know, two years later, I mean, it's like this guy it was just amazing. I mean, which reminds us, we must get him on the show. Yes, but, indeed. You know, it was just. It was like sitting with a history book talking about you know Nicholas and wow, it was like you know the great players and all the things that happened and so those interviews were just you know I mean his was particularly good, but him and Payne, his and Payne Stewart's I think stand out to me funnily enough they're the two that Peter I Thompson, remember. Peter Thompson's was a great one as well. Oh, no, no surprise there, Richard. How do we fit that into the new world? That's well, it's funny. I, I the. the uh... There's a, a lady who's just got, well, he's now head of Guardian Digital over here. And, and uh, she made a good point saying, and it was asked the question, you know, what's the future and, and where's it going to go or go? And she's saying, well, there are, there are two big trends. One is absolute real time, you know, live blogging, um, new media. And the other is long form, really good long form, you know, like the New Yorker. <sighs> you know, it's, it's, so there is an appetite for both. Um, probably as with every market, the middle market is always diff- more difficult because you're sort of, it's a more difficult story to sell. But the, the, um, if you look at something like, I mean, it's interesting to talk about the Weisskopf Q&A. I love a Q&A. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Paris Review, you know, in terms of you read writers' massively long Q&As, you know, and they just go on forever. But they're just so fascinating. And, and, and actually that level of, of sort of discourse you miss because – I love all the quick stuff. I love BuzzFeed. I like, you know, 200 things about, you know, bread, all of that. But 
I really do miss uh, that the, a sort of level of confidence that you require. And probably what you're saying is that the old Golf Digest and certainly Paris Review, the New Yorker has it, um, where the confidence of that your audience will go with you for, you know, is willing to spend 40 minutes reading something is, you know, in short supply in the, in the magazine publishing world because they ain't making any money. Mm. And, you know, a lot of them. And they're, they're, they're sort of thinking they're going to have to get this out and they're cutting costs. And so everything becomes a bit homogenized and everything sort of moves to the middle a little bit. But actually, it's interesting, you know, so the Guardian, the, the, the people that are doing this well are saying, right, it's got to be, we've got to be really at the sharp end, short, live blogging, real, real time. But also there is a huge space for long form. At the back and that's, so, that's encouraging. So you, you follow it when it happens and then you take the time to really analyse what it might mean uh, behind almost two levels of journalists there, aren't there? There's the the guys doing it at the coalface and then those who are, who are looking behind it. Yeah, and- I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, uh, and, you know, you look at uh, the two or three new things that have happened this year in, in media. I mean, Ezra Klein's thing in the States explainer journalism you know it's it's these sort of hip new blogs that are are now beginning to make money and they aren't just news blogs they're not just churning news stories they're they're spending a great deal of time either with data explaining stuff um or giving background Mm. um so you know that's again that's a that's a big trend and i don't see that in golf i don't see that in the golf media at the moment shackleford.com it's the one place to go the only place yeah (laughs) Apart from the unofficial partner, when he has the golf stories, although all the, so, the uh, all the stories are interesting, a bit like Clates with Tom Weiskopf, Richard. I feel like we could sit here for four years and chat to you. I don't think we've even touched the surface with some of the stuff I wanted to talk about. How all this stuff impacts the game at the grassroots level and stuff. But we must let you go because it is getting late there in London. Uh, can't thank you enough for taking some time to chat to us. It's been fantastic. Not at all. No, I've loved it. And uh, next time, just give me a shout. Um, I'm always always up for a chat about golf. All right, I reckon we'll, uh, we'll definitely have you back. Right. It's been uh, fantastic. Clates, to you. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming along today. It's been great to get your insights, as it always is. Thanks, mate. Sorry I was late. Yeah, that's okay. Not a problem. And uh, I'll do a doubly nice introduction for you next time so that you don't feel like you've missed out. And actually, I, what I did want to say in the intro there, Clates, you've changed the company name. It's Ogilvy Clayton. Cocking and Mead now. You told us once that it wasn't fair, that you were one half of Ogilvy Clayton, you were really one quarter, and now you've done something to fix it. So congratulations to you. Well done, mate. No, I am truly one quarter. <laughs> That's exactly right, and nobody can say otherwise. But I still get 100% of the blame when they cut the trees down, trust me. Oh, absolutely. That's that, fine. That, you that's, can handle it. That's right. your role within the company, yeah. you see. Yeah. That's, uh, your job is to take the blame. Great to have you aboard today, and Shaq, always good to have you on board as well. Thank you very much, and thank you, Richard. Well, Great, and uh, well, hopefully speak again, but uh, keep up the Absolutely. good work, folks. It's, uh, oh, I love the podcast, you. it's great. Oh, great, good to, oh, hear. Well, good to hear. We will take you up on that offer. Yeah. And that does wrap it up for this episode of State of the Game. Been great to have you along. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, one day with Tom Weisskopf. Wouldn't that be beauty in the meantime? Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Look forward to your company next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.